Well, as far as baseball goes, the best news that I could come up with today is that the Royals did not lose yesterday. They didn't play either. They got rained out. That's the best I got. It's like I was searching all week long. That, that's really all I got. So I've got some other news for you that is worth celebrating, and it is worth cheering about. Um, we just went through little season in our church. We do it every year where we only do really two fundraisers a year. We do one for our kids and one for our students. And we do that so that there's not 14 or 42. We just do two. Well, the, the, stu- the kids, which that was the tents that were out. Remember the, the envelopes on the tents and you just put the amount in. It helps our kids go to camp. Over $5,000, in fact, 5400 bucks you guys gave to help them go to camp, which is the largest amount that was ever given to help them go to camp. <laughs> largest amount ever. Thank you. Um, students just had their auction, 8900 bucks to help them go on mission, which is the largest amount that was ever, ever done. I think it's wild. It's wild. The largest amounts that were ever given um, on each of those just happened over the last um, several weeks. You realize your positioning, I consider our kids and our students probably to be the most dangerous group of people I know in our church because they just go for it. They really do. Um, You are positioning them to be put in some opportunities for just God to continue to speak into their lives, whether it's going to camp, going on mission trip, whatever that is. You help them a little bit by just taking a little bit of the edge off the cost of, of doing that. Um, I just can't thank you enough. We're also celebrating um, our students. I'm proud of you guys just inviting people. We have come to the place that we can finally do what we've wanted to do for a long time. <clears throat> this week, our middle school and high school, those events are splitting so that this Wednesday, High schoolers will still meet at the vault for Move 342, but on Sunday night, for the first time, our middle school is going to do their own thing at the vault, prime time. They've invited friends. The group has grown big enough that we really need to divide it in order for more people to come. I'm saying good job, students, on that whole deal. Good job. In case you haven't heard, just the whole vault deal, the, the building in Harrisonville, we'll be giving you more info soon as we get towards summer, which is really close, by the way. That's when we're really going to open it to the public, and we'll, just, we'll do some talking about that over the, the uh, next several weeks and, and really how you, if you want, can become a part of that deal. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you didn't let a little rain, I mean a lot of rain, keep you away. Um, I'm glad to be here too because I spent 15 hours yesterday in an airport trying to get here to be with you today. So I'm not only glad you're here, I'm glad I'm here because this is where I wanted to be. So Put Me In Coach is a series that we just started last week that is dealing with this truth. Belonging to God's family is not about just sitting in the ballpark. Belonging to God's family is about playing on the field. And so our song is not take me out to the ball game where you eat stuff and cheer other people on. Our song is put me in coach. I'm ready to play today. 
We are learning from the book of Acts. So if you want to grab your Bible, I'm encouraging you to go to the book of Acts. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, don't, don't be afraid to talk to us about, hey, if we can help you find one, if you need one, we'd be glad to put one in your hand. Um, especially with what we're doing right now in Acts, this is a story. It's a story that unfolds each week as we look at, at, this, at, at this most unique um, book. I, I want you to be able to follow along. I want you to be able to have a Bible. Um, this is the story of how the church began. This is how it started. Jesus dies, rises, and then after he rises, he appears to people over a period of some 40 days, and then he ascends back to heaven. Well, Luke is a guy who writes the story for us. He tells us what happens. He writes the gospel of Luke, and he writes this account called Acts. And last week, we opened chapter 1 to discover that Jesus has given the church a mission statement. And he gave it early on in the book. He said, church, this is what, this is what you're supposed to do. There is a power a purpose, and a plan. Here's what it said. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. His Spirit, God's Spirit, means power in your life. And here's the purpose. You will be my witnesses. I'm going to give you power for you to tell the truth about what you know about me, what you've experienced in me. And then here's the plan. In Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This week, we're in chapter 2. All right? So chapter 2 of Acts. Most people love verse 1 through 13, which I'll kind of summarize for you in a minute. They love verse 1 through 14, or through 13. And then, a lot of people love the end of the chapter, like verse 42 to 47. That's typically where people hang out in chapter 2. Few people look at the middle. Guess where we're going to hang out? In the middle. Because in the middle of this chapter is actually where you learn how God makes this mission work. All right? He says, you're going to receive power. Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. But what we read happens in the middle of this chapter is a beautiful picture of how God actually pulls this off. All right? So, early in the chapter, we've got what Jesus has promised, that the Holy Spirit would arrive, he arrives. When he arrives, everybody knows it. Loud noise, we're told, like a wind. And then this visual that they describe like, like fire, it was like tongues of, of fire that, that, that touched each of them. And when that happened, those disciples who were gathered in that room began to speak in languages that people who had come from other lands could understand. Now, I want to be really clear, because I think Acts 2 is very, very clear. This is not speaking in a language that's like only a prayer language between them and God. That's not what this is in Acts chapter 2. This moment, they are speaking in a real language, just not their own languages, and they're all apparently speaking in different ones, and people who've come from these other places can understand what they're saying. It would sort of be like, I'm preaching along today, and all of a sudden, I begin to speak flawless 
Mandarin. Okay? And I'm, I'm speaking Mandarin, and I'm speaking it in such a way that, that uh, Phoebe or, or Gideon or William, who they own it, they own the language, they would look at me and go, that's good. They would say, actually, that's perfect. You don't even sound like an American trying to speak Mandarin. You actually sound like you can speak the language. Yeah, that's what's happening in the first part of this chapter. And then in verse 14, which is where we're going to pick it up. You ready? Then Peter stood up with the 11, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. And then I love what he says in 15. These people are not drunk. I think that's funny. These people are not drunk as you suppose. It's only, this is his argument, it's only nine in the morning. All right? Now here's what's happened. Holy Spirit has arrived and he has clothed these people in power. Which means, man, their fear is exiting. Their fear including the need to really worry about what I look like in front of you. They just now know by the power of God's spirit they are completely loved. They are completely forgiven. They belong to Jesus and they are becoming what the scripture describes in other places, what they look like fools for Christ, right? There's some crazy stuff starting to happen out of their life. Now, these are not people who have been known to have spines of steel. Mm -mm. But all of a sudden, there's this boldness of, you know what? I, I don't care what you think about me in this moment. Here's what I got to tell you. They are boldly making much of Jesus. And this is the point that I want to go ahead and make it, and I'm probably going to make it over and over again in this series. The greatest evidence in the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit has clothed someone in power is not that they do miracles. The miracles are seen in the book, but they're not the point. It's not even that they can speak in tongues. The greatest miracle or the greatest evidence over and over in the book of Acts that someone has been clothed with the Spirit of God is that they are bold about testifying to who Jesus is. It's the greatest evidence. He gives them boldness. And so, here's what's happening. They're being bold in such a way that the crowd's looking on and going, they must be drunk. Because nobody would go that far if they weren't drunk. Nobody, nobody, nobody'd be that bold. Nobody'd be that crazy. Nobody's going to stand up on a day like today and, and, and say this if they're not drunk. And so Peter's simply saying, we're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. I'm sorry, it just still makes me laugh. That's his argument. It's only nine, right? It's not even late in the day. We're not drunk. This is actually what the prophet Joel said would happen a long time ago. Now, we're told all this happens when Jerusalem, the city, is filled with Jews all over the Roman Empire. They have come from all over the empire. 
And the reason that they have arrived is for a celebration, a party called Pentecost. Now, this is what Pentecost was. Pentecost is a festival, a party, after the barley season, but before the wheat harvest. So the way it works is they harvest all the grain, the barley, and then time out, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate what we've been given before we jump back into the fields and bring in the wheat. All right? That's what this was. Now, I'm telling you, it's a party. This is a party. There is eating and there is drinking and there is music. That's why Peter's saying we ain't drunk. There is eating and there is drinking and there is music and there is dancing. This is full-on celebration. In other words, it's sort of like Peter stands up in the middle of Mardi Gras and says, this is what you need to know. So here's what I want you to grasp. God, God meets us where we are. You want to know how God pulls off this mission? This is where we start. God meets us where we are. You know where they are? A party. That's where they are. Music, dancing, food, drink, they're at a party. Nobody expects this to happen at Pentecost. Nobody does. But God moving the mission forward always begins with God meeting people where they are. Now I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. The first one is this. Where were you physically when he found you? Where were you? Now, I get it. For some of you, you might say, well, I was at church, all right? Because he does that sometimes. He does. Sometimes it's at the church building, all right? But you, even then, some of you didn't expect him to do that on the day that he found you, right? You thought that when your buddy invited you to breakfast, he didn't mean donuts and coffee in the church foyer, right? That wasn't what you thought. He drug you to church. All of a sudden, you found yourself in the middle of something. And the next thing you know, God does his thing. And he speaks. And you know it's him. Sometimes God does it at church. But you know what? I know so many stories, so many people, people that it was at a party. People that it was in their bed. I've known people that were, he awoke them from a dream. I've known it happen at a ball game, at bars, at an office, in a classroom. We even have people that it happened at the end of a gun barrel. We really do. Not like the, you will trust Jesus, but the, oh my goodness, this is it. And all of a sudden, they're asking questions like, am I ready? Seriously. It's like God will show up in the strangest of places because he will meet you where you are. For some of you, it might even be here today. It might be here today. I'm saying in this story, it's not how we often paint the picture. It's not at a church service. It's not at a Bible study. It's at a party. It's a full-on party. That's when this happens. Now, here's the second question that I want to ask you, which I think is even bigger. 
Not just where were you physically when he found you, but where were you spiritually when he found you? Where were you spiritually? And if that word freaks you out, just think morally. Where were you morally when God found you? And then I want you to listen really, really, really careful to me, especially if you are a person who is investigating and thinking and searching of who is Jesus. I want you to hear what I'm about to tell you, please. It is not, it is not the expectation of God that you clean yourself up before you meet him. You hear me? It is not the expectation of God that you clean yourself up before you meet him. Because that would mean I need to change all the stuff that, that I know needs to be changed about me, and then I need to meet God where he is. And I'm saying that ain't how it works. He is the God who meets us where we are. Now, I'm going to warn you, if you walk this thing out following Jesus, there are going to be some moments in your life where Christians who I think sometimes with really good intentions will often place expectations on other people to clean themselves up before they meet Jesus. But I'm telling you, the good news is God meets you where you are. Now, I'm telling you, I don't know of any other truth that impacts in a greater way what a church ends up looking like. That truth alone affects big time how a church ends up looking. Because if you believe this truth that God meets people where they are, and I don't know about you, but most of us are in some messy places when God ends up meeting us there, then you understand the church it blows away that concept that this church is just, that our church is like this isolated bubble where everybody cleans themselves up and then we come together and we are isolated from a big bad world. That won't work, not if you believe this truth. Because if God meets people where they are and you're following him and you are given the purpose of testifying to who he is, then you should be encountering people where they are, which means messy people. Our philosophy here is we don't clean them before we catch them. That won't work if you're fishing. And it doesn't work with the purpose of God either. Our job is not to clean people up before we catch them. Jesus is actually the one that catches them, by the way. We get to love them in that process, and then he also does the cleaning. Some of you need to stop spending your whole life avoiding the people that Jesus spent his whole life engaging. I'm going to say it again. Some of you need to stop spending your whole life avoiding the people that Jesus spent his whole life getting to. And by the way, don't keep your family from that either. Don't keep your family from that either. If there are no messy people in your life, I'm really asking the question, are you following Jesus? I just am. If there are no messy people in your life, then are you following Jesus? 
Because everywhere I read about Jesus, he's constantly engaging people where they are, which means in the middle of messes, which means that's where we should be. And as we continue in Acts, I'm just warning you, that's going to be the model. He meets us where we are. Watch what Peter says, all right? Verse 23. I can't read the whole thing. So verse 23. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. Now he's talking about Jesus. He's preaching about Jesus. And who? You. All right? Let's just be clear. You, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Hmm. That's, that's pretty clear, right? But just in case you didn't get that, let's skip down 13 verses later to verse 36. And Peter's still talking, same crowd. Here's what he said. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you, who, who? You did what? Crucified both Lord and Messiah. So in 13 verses, two times, Peter looks at him and says, you killed him. You killed him. Now, what I'm about to tell you is really, really good news. But it's not going to feel like it for some of us in the beginning. But this is really good news. Just trust me for a few minutes and I'll show you. Not only does God meet us where we are, but God also tells us the truth about ourselves. God tells us the truth about ourselves. That's what's happening on this day. God meets them where they are, and then the truth is known. Here's what you have done. Now, there are thousands of people in the city, and there are thousands of people in this crowd. We don't know exactly how many thousands. We just know that at the end, 3,000 of them end up trusting in Jesus. But we we don't know what the total number was. I'm going to say, though, I think it's safe to assume that probably not everybody in that crowd of thousands and thousands and thousands of people are physically responsible for killing Jesus. In fact, I'm going to say it's likely with a crowd that big, some of them might not have even been in town. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody's trying to get there. Everybody's trying to come from every direction to, 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 to Pentecost, but at the crucifixion, which was like 50 days ago. It was 50 days ago. They they probably weren't even physically there, some of them. Kind of like I wasn't. You weren't. This was more than 2,000 years ago. But that doesn't stop Peter from declaring to them, and it's a declaration to us, you killed him. Like, whoa, how can that be if we weren't even there? How how can we be responsible if we weren't even there? Um, How many of you have seen the movie Passion of the Christ? Just curious, Passion of the Christ, some of you have. If you've seen the movie, you are probably familiar with this image. It happens in the movie where there's just this image of, that's a a Roman soldier's hand, obviously, that's holding a spike that in the movie they're about to drive through the hand of Jesus as they crucify him, all right? 
But it's really interesting when you get a behind-the-scenes picture of how that was shot. You know who that is? It's Mel Gibson. He actually directed the movie. And that's the only place in the entire movie that his presence is on film. It's his hand. And he insisted that it be that way. Because he said, it was me. It was me. Now, I don't know all about Mel Gibson's life. I I don't know about all decisions and all that stuff. But all I know is on that moment and that thought and that theology, he's correct. He's correct. It's like, but how can that be? How could it be that we are guilty if we're not even there? Now, I'm about to answer that, and some of us in this room need the answer because you really need to know how that guilt can be taken away. There are others of us in this room who maybe that's happened to you somewhere. God met you where you were, and there was a moment you called out to him and he forgave you, but you struggle now to know how to communicate that to other people. And it's like, I, I really, I, I want, you know, I, I want to be clothed with power, and I want to witness to who Jesus is, and I want to talk to people, but I don't really know how to, like, explain how they're guilty. I don't know how to do that in a way that, that, that's right. Well, I'm about to do my best to answer that question for both groups of people, all right? And I'm going to give you a really simple way to do it. Not a ton of verses, actually just a few verses from Romans. And this is how I would do it. Romans chapter 3, verse 23 reads like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That word all, you know what it means? All. All. Like, like when you break it down, like in the original, like Greek language, all. That's what it means. And this is the way we would describe it here. The ground is level in this room. Whether the concrete is or not is not the question. But Spiritually, in terms of our guilt before God, this room is level. Now, if we went to make a list today, and we started listing the stuff that we've all done, it would look like, in most of our opinions, that maybe there was a few low spots in the room because it's a little heavier. Their list is a few feet longer than some other lists in the room. And, and yet, I'm telling you, the ground is level because We all, all have fallen short of God's greatness, all right? Now, you're like, what do you mean? We could start listing some stuff, you know, and we can list like, you know, it's like, well, sure, everybody's told a lie. I mean, that's just little stuff. And, you know, everybody's probably, you know, they've taken something they shouldn't have had along the way. But then there's like murder. And then there's like, you know, adultery. And there's like some of those, some of those bigger ones. And I'm not going to list them for you today. I'm just going to show you, when you read Romans, this is the way Romans describes how we all are guilty. We all prefer the created over the creator. All of us have. You know what that means? 
we all would rather have the stuff that God has made more than God. All of us, at some point. At some point, it's like, okay, the Bible says all good things were made so that we would know that there is a good maker. But the truth is, we just toss that out the door and we go, God, I hear what you're saying, but I actually, this is what I need. And I'd rather have the stuff that you can make than you. We all have done that. And that shows up looking like different sins that we could list today. It also says that we all believe the lie that we are smarter than God. We do. It's like, well, I don't think I'm smarter than God. Yes, you do. Every single time God says do this and then you do something different, you are declaring that you are smarter than God. Every time. It's like, God, God, I know that you are the sovereign king of the universe and I currently have a deficit in my checking account because I'm not really good at budgeting, but I think I'm going with me on this one. Like, seriously? You think about how we do that? It's because we believe the lie that we're smarter than God, and that shows up in different categories, we would say, of sin. Here's the third one. All have failed to acknowledge God as the giver of all good things. We do. We assume that we're it, man, and we, we just work to that people might know how good we are and we glorify ourselves and this is our abilities and what we're able to do, all that came from God. But we all have taken credit for it. The, the, the way I would jokingly say that is, I believe I'm a basketball fan and I don't believe that anybody, anybody over seven feet tall should be allowed to dunk a basketball and celebrate it. Like, seriously? What did you do? You were born. Right? You were born. If you're seven feet tall and you raise your hands over your head, you're already like 11 feet tall or something. It's like, seriously? Make a free throw and then you can dance. Right? That's what I want to say to anybody who's over seven feet tall. But I'm saying that's what we do in our lives. And we, we're strutting around like we're it. The Bible says that we all have done that. It, all that together reveals us seeing ourselves as God. And listen to me. Maybe it hadn't happened yet. But you being God is going to fail. Because there is so much stuff in this life that is bigger than you, and everything in the next is bigger than you. And right now, slowly, your soul will shrivel when you assume the position of God. We all fall short of God's greatness, but it says in verse 24, thank goodness, we all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. All guilty. Now he says we can be justified. What does that mean? It just means we, we can be made right. How? Grace is the word. It means we didn't earn it. Freely is the word. It means we, we didn't earn it. But it comes through Jesus. One more verse, verse 25. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Don't freak out. We'll come back. Through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Here's how I would summarize that. I'm going to give you a word. 
And some of you are going to call it a church word, but can I tell you that there are just some words that exist in church and in the study of God that don't really get applied in any other area of life? But that shouldn't shock us. Here's the word. Don't put the definition up yet. I'm just going to say the word first. Propitiation. Propitiation. Now, I'm willing, because I'm not like a gambling man, but I'd just about bet the house you didn't use the word this week. How you doing? Ah, pretty good. That propitiation was just... If you did, you used it wrong, all right? If that's how you used it, that was, that was not it. Here's what the word means. I'm going to define it, and then I'm going to do my best to explain it. Propitiation is absorbing wrath by taking care of the penalty for the offense that caused the wrath. Now, here's, here's how I would explain it. If God is good, completely good, if God is holy, then if there's wrong, shouldn't God care about that? Or should he just like close his eyes and pretend like nothing? No. If, if he is good, then there should be a right anger against that which is wrong. And at the cross, we are told God's righteous anger against sin, which we are, we have done, we're on the list, we got our list, God's wrath that should have been poured out on us because of our sin, instead, Jesus absorbed it. He took it. He took the wrath for our rebellion. Now, can you see why this whole thing might be offensive? That where God meets us where we are, and then he tells us the truth, and the truth is, we've rebelled against God. We are sinners. But here's what I'm saying. I'm so glad God says that to me. And here's why. I'm so grateful that God didn't look into Jeff's soul and say, you're so awesome. Jeff, you're so awesome. I would not worship that God. And the reason is, because I already know I'm not. I already know I'm selfish. I already know where my heart can go. I've seen it. I already know where my mind can go. I've seen it. You know guilt and shame before anybody, anybody ever told you that God said don't do that. You already felt it. You already knew it. And so if God looks in my heart and tells me there's nothing wrong, what do I do with my guilt? What, what do I do with my fear? What do I do with my anger? What, what do I do with all that stuff that I know is real? I'm telling you, the hope is found in God being honest with me. The hope is found in God being honest with us that God knows it and he points it out is absolutely wonderful. It means he's really God and I've finally found somebody I can trust. You are never freer than when you have no secrets. And when you meet this God who calls you on it, this God who shows up and says, you're busted, but also says there is 
forgiveness. Then all the hiding and all the pretending, oh God, save us from this weak veneer that we're all okay, because we're not. And he knows it, and we know it. And here's the best news. Not only does God meet us where we are, and not only does he tell us the truth about ourselves, but the gospel covers what is true about us, that we are sinners. Here's the scripture, verse 29, the gospel covers. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried. They all know David. He was a famous king. And his tomb is here today in the city of Jerusalem. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Way back in David's time, God was saying, I'm going to send somebody. I'm going to send a deliverer. And he's coming through David's line. Verse 31, seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it, Peter said. It's all making sense now. This is what David wrote about a long time ago, and I'm declaring to you today, he says, Jesus' victory over death and hell becomes our victory over death and hell. No longer doomed, no longer separated from the one that we were made for, but in this beautiful exchange. The one who never sinned, the one who was perfect, he took on sin. He became sin for us who had done wrong. It was as though Jesus took all the stuff that we had done and he made it his. It was as though he did it. And then in exchange, he gave us all his rightness, all his goodness. So that when God looks at us now, he sees clean. He takes my sin. He gives me his righteousness. And then I'm wrapping it up. But I'm about to hit this hard, and I'm just warning you, I'm about to hit this hard. Where the gospel is proclaimed, we must respond. Verse 37, when the people heard this, right, Peter's done preaching the message. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? When the good news of Jesus is declared, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, a response is demanded. And for you to refuse to respond is a response. The Puritans used to say it this way. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. And it really is a perfect way to describe what happens when the good news of Jesus is declared and heard, one or the other is happening every single time. Either a softening of the heart or a hardening of the heart. When the good news of Jesus is declared and you hear it, and, and you know, because you know you, you knew you before God said this is this, you knew it. 
He's telling you the truth about you and you begin to wrestle with your guilt and you begin to, to even seek out people going, what am I supposed to do with this? Hey, how do, how, do I, how do I make this right? And you begin to take the step toward Jesus. I'm saying it is the softening of your heart. But when you refuse, it is taking steps to harden your heart. Now, I'm, I'm about to tell you why this issue alone terrifies me as a pastor. Because this truth makes surface-level American evangelical weekend church attendance a terrifying thing. Let me explain. When you go to church and you are completely unmoved, now, I'm not talking about that a tear didn't roll down your face, because that could happen. Because there could be compassion at some moment that you see something that stirs your heart and it makes you cry and something could happen. But I mean, when you go to church and you hear God's word spoken and there is no move of you to submit your life to what is being declared from God, and you do absolutely nothing with what you've heard, every single time that happens, you are taking a step to harden your heart. And I think it explains much of the American church across our land where people can go every week and they will go diligently even on a day when they could have found an excuse not to come because the waters were high. But they will go to a church and they can sit through something and they can hear something, but they do nothing with something. And slowly over time, their heart just hardens to the point that they don't even know it anymore. It terrifies me. We don't, I'm telling you, it's a foolish game to play with your soul and God will not be mocked and he will not be deceived we don't think this way but come on you're an hour closer to your day of accounting you're an hour closer since we've been in here it's like we all know this is like really I know this is kind of gritty but we all know there are going to be funerals this year though none of us think it's ours we don't we, we just don't think that way. Some of us, this is our year. It's like, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm telling you what you kind of already know. It's just if your heart has been hardened by sitting and hearing but never following, then my prayer is that today God would just jolt your heart again. To not respond is to take a step toward hardening your heart, and you are moving to an eventual just judgment of God, but that's your decision. Today, you have the opportunity to choose to soften. Here's what it says in verse 38. Peter replied, what do we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. What do you do? He says, here's what you do. You turn. When you hear it, you hear the truth, you turn to him. 
Repentance is a turning away from my sin to the Jesus who loves me and who offers me this opportunity. Baptism is that external picture of a life that is completely submitted to him, a life that is completely turned over to him. And so I'm moving from my sin, I'm following him, an, a, a changed life through ongoing confession and repentance, and I'm, I'm seeking out people who can help me walk this thing out. And the church was born. And I'm just going to read it to you. We're not really going to talk about this today, but I just want you to see what happens. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God, enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. When they turned, they turned. And the evidence of God's spirit became so overwhelming this, this, it uses words like devoted. They were, their whole heart was in it, man. They wanted to know everything that they could get about what does God have to say and who is Jesus and, 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 and how does he impact our lives. And then they were devoted to one another. Come on. Sell some stuff because somebody else needs something. Sell some stuff because somebody else needs something, which means you couldn't meet their need because you didn't have enough cash on hand, so you sold some stuff to meet it. Wow. Who's God in that life? Certainly not their stuff. Words like glad. How cool would it be to live a life that's just characterized by glad, right? that you are aware of all that God has done for you rather than you being an expert on everything you don't have and what you want. How about words like just generous, I, not wondering who's going to give you what you deserve and what else is owned, but you, you, are, just, you are just overwhelmed. They, they become a powerful force. Now listen, what, here's what we're going to see. This is a happy season. This is a happy season. There's going to be some struggles that come inside. There's going to be some struggles that come from the outside. But guess what? Somebody's going to be there to guide them, to correct them, to encourage them, and to empower them. And guess who he is? Holy Spirit. May he do the same with his church. It says in this text that they broke bread together. Did you get that? It said it a couple of times. Now, honestly, I think in that day, that actually meant they would have a meal together. They did. They had a meal together. And I preached a sermon not too long ago about eating together and how biblical that is and how much you should do that, right? And I'm sure you all, if you were going to obey one, that might have been the one you were going to get after. They would have this big meal together, but a part of what that meal would be would be what we today call uh, communion or Lord's Supper. And that's something that we're going to celebrate together today. And so basically what that is, is there are a couple of elements involved with that. A, a little um, piece of bread, like a little cracker. And we believe this is symbolic for us today of remembering the body 
of Jesus that was broken for us. And then there will also be a little cup of juice. It's just grape juice, but it's red, which is symbolic for us. It reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was shed. And so in a few moments, you have the invitation. I'm going to pray, and then you're going to be invited to, there's a table back there, there's a table back there, and there's a table over here. You can go, go with a friend, go with your family, go over to the table, take a piece of the bread, a little of the juice, and then I'm going to encourage you to like, go away from the table. Either go back to where you're seated, or you can just find a spot somewhere in the room if you want to. I'm saying just let somebody else get to the table instead of just kind of clogging the whole thing up. And just go to that spot, and here, here's, here's what I would encourage you to do. Eat the bread together, and then drink the juice together. And then just somebody who might be willing to just thank him for what he's done. It really could be as simple as, thank you, Jesus, for loving us. That counts if it's from your heart, all right? Now, here's what I'm saying. If you are really a follower of Jesus here today, if you're a follower of Jesus, regardless of what church you come from, we invite you to be a part of this. If you're not, then you're probably not going to want to. We get that because we're celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And so this, this hasn't yet become that reality for you. Here's my invitation to you. Let it be that reality today. Make it that reality today. Take the step today. Now here's what's gonna happen. People are gonna be moving in the next few minutes. I'm gonna pray. The band's gonna kinda do a song that just kinda takes us into what this moment is all about. Even when they, as soon as I'm finished praying, you can start moving, all right? And listen, if you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus, today's such a good day because people are going to be moving all around this room. And you know what? We're going to be right over there in that corner, right over by that cross. It would be such a cool day for you to just walk that direction, and you can find me or you can find one of the others who are going to be there. There'll be some men, some women who are there, and just say, can you help me take the step? And I'm saying it's one of those days where it's not going to be embarrassing for you. You're not being put on the spot. There are people moving all over this room, so it's a cool day to move. God might have set you up for this moment. He brought you here today. This is the encounter you didn't expect to have with him, but guess what? Here he is. And he's saying, come on. I'll pray, and then we'll celebrate, and then we'll celebrate some more as we sing together. All right? Let's pray. God, thank you for, um, God, in a way you kind of peel back the curtain this morning and just give us an inside look. But it's an inside look that some of us are fully aware of. God, you have met us where we are. God, you have loved us when we were unlovable. God, you didn't make us get clean and then come to you. God, you drew us to you and then you are still working. So God, I thank you for that truth in people's lives here today. God, I, I pray for those though where the response to good news has been do nothing. And I'm asking that those hearts could be softened today to see the truth, God. There may be some folks who for the very first time today are hearing this news and they need to trust, but there also may be some people who have sat in church their entire life. God, there may be people in this room who grew up in church that they, they've done all the stuff, but the truth is they have never, never put their trust in you and they have never experienced what it means for you to live in them. 
God, today, might those miracles take place in hearts in this room by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.